My name is Nick Wilding. Uh, I organize this session. And uh, I'm just going to very briefly introduce our moderator, uh, Professor Anne Blair. I'm sure well, uh, everybody knows Anne's work. She's already been cited more than any other scholar uh, today. Um, she uh, is known to us for the trail-breaking work on Baudin, a uh, series of great articles on Gesner, uh, the uh, daunting Too Much to Know, very aptly titled book, um, and is now working on uh, amanuenses in early modern Europe. So Anne will be moderating. We have four uh, papers in this session, so we're going to run fairly, uh, just straight through the uh, all four papers and then have Q&A at the end to bring everything together. That's the plan. So over to Anne. Thank you. It's a great pleasure to be here. Thank you very much for coming. And thanks, special thanks to Nick for organizing this. I just want to put in a plug for his two books, Galileo's Idol, Gian Francesco Sagredo and the Politics of Knowledge, University of Chicago Press 2014. He's got a dozen book and journal articles and has held many different fellowships. Most recently, he's become an expert on forgery, in particular in the Galileo case. His treatment of that topic has appeared in French, as Fossère de Lune, published by the Bibliothèque Nationale in 2015. So watch out for more things coming from Nick Wilding, who is Associate Professor of History at Georgia State University in Atlanta. So as Nick indicated, we'll follow the program and the order in the program. And our first speaker is Ivana Horacek, who is a Research Associate at the University of Minnesota Twin Cities and currently teaching at Longera College in Vancouver. She recently completed her PhD entitled Alchemy of the Gift, Things, Material Transformations, and Geopolitics at the Court of Rudolf II in the Department of Art History, Visual Art, and Theory at the University of British Columbia. So her research explores the materiality of Kunstkammer gifts, their transformative qualities and potentials, and their relationship to the making of knowledge. Thank you. very much for that introduction. I'm going to start the timer. <coughs> Depicted outdoors against a fading sky, a hand-colored woodblock print from Tycho Brahe's Astronomia Instarate Mechanica, Instruments of the Renewed Astronomy, features an equatorial armillary. The instrument is composed of two distinct parts, the head, the upper perfectly circular portion that includes the armillae or rings painted in gold gouache, emphasizing the instrument's metallic surface of brass. The base, the more decorative portion of the instrument, supports the armillae in space. A thick black line outlines the edges of the picture, giving the impression that we are looking at the instrument through a window, which in turn is surmounted by a Latin inscription in majuscule letters, armillae equatoriae, indicating the instrument's name. A decorative strip of floral and grotesque decoration provides emphasis just below the pictured instrument, and a decorative frame contains the instrument on the page. While the framing devices organize our viewing experience of the picture, a peculiar interplay between the head and body of the instrument disrupts the structured presentation of the armillary, 
The head of the instrument bears the marks of minutes that are clearly inscribed on arcs. Delineated through a balanced and a symmetrical rendering, they suggest measurement, order, and clarity. While a suggested symmetry is present in the base of the instrument, particularly in the two facing brackets that support the main wall of the body and suggest depth, their decorative elements, the curving colorful scrolls and figurative stand, figures standing in niches, they distract from the symmetrical properties of the head. Something is also awry in the use of perspective in the base. The two decorative and supporting brackets appear to be twisting to the right, with the right hand bracket partly obscuring the decorative edge of the base that contains the two figures, effectively ruining the, sim the symmetry of the composition. Overall, the contrast between the decorative body of the instrument and the symmetrical, balanced, and ordered heads attributes to the general impression of disjointedness between head and body of the printed instrument and beckons the viewer to inspect the picture of the armillary sphere more closely. The picture of the armillary is one among 21 similarly structured hand-painted prints of mathematical instruments featured in the Mechanica, a book of instruments dedicated to the Habsburg Emperor Rudolf II, 18 of which are woodblocks and four are copper plate engravings, and here the only copper plate engraving is the one in the, in the center top. However, the Mechanica is more than just a catalogue of instruments. It may be understood as a well-tailored and detailed curriculum vitae functioning as an essential component of Brahe's patronage strategy, in which he presented himself and his instruments, the key tools of his science, to his network of brokers, to Rudolf II, and to posterity. It also offers a view into his unprecedented methods and techniques that emphasize repeatability of measurement using multiple instruments in order to eliminate errors, while relying on an observationally driven practice. Apart from the pictures of the instruments and their detailed descriptions, the Mechanica contains Brahe's scientific autobiography, his future research plans, and letters and poems written by his friends and colleagues, who praise his achievements and his dedication to astronomy. Tycho Brahe was a Danish mathematician of noble heritage who made significant contributions to the so-called renewal of astronomy, a widespread quest that as early as the 12th and 13th centuries recognized the failings of astronomy, particularly its relationship to the inaccuracies of the Julian calendar, imprecise lunar tables, and incorrect length of the solar year. Tycho Brahe's main contributions to astronomy were made while he resided on the island of Hven in Denmark, where between 1576 and 1598, while under the patronage of King Frederick II of Denmark, he established a major research institution. He built two observatories, Uraniborg and nearby Stjernborg, employing mathematicians, scholars, and artisans who worked collaboratively in the pursuit of an improved astronomy. Following Frederick's death in 1588, and after falling out of favor with Frederick's successor, Brahe abandoned his observatories in search of a new patron, leaving Denmark in 1597. The Mechanica was first published in 1598 by the Hamburg printer Philip von Urs, using Brahe's own private printing press at the castle of Vandesbeck, shortly after Brahe abandoned his research institute on the island of Huen. The hand-color presentation edition included between 60 to 100 copies, and here I'm showing you three of the ones that I was able to access, one in Dresden, one at the British Library, and one at the National Library of Denmark. Uh, Brahe was an active member within the Republic of Letters, relying on his connections, and disseminated presentation copies of the Mechanica among his network of brokers, scholars, and friends before personally gifting it to Emperor Rudolf II, the dedicatee of the book during a private audience. His strategy worked. He was named Imperial Mathematician in 1599, a post he held until his untimely death in 1601.
Now, I've only had the opportunity to personally examine the copy held by the British Library given, to Brahe, given by Brahe to Thaddeus Hedesius of Hayek, a professor of mathematics at Charles University, Emperor Rudolf's personal physician, and one of Brahe's most important correspondents and friends. Hayek also likely played a key role in facilitating Brahe's position at the imperial court in Prague. While not the first to use the medium of print to give gifts of knowledge and to gain a claim while seeking patronage in the field, I argue that it was through the printed images of his instruments that Brahe impressed upon his target audience the validity of his methods, the notion of seeing for oneself, allowing the viewer to virtually witness his unprecedented methods to renew astronomy, methods that contributed to the development, as Gabor Alnassi states of, and I quote, a new astronomical discourse in pursuit of credibility that gave priority to observational astronomy and natural philosophical questions, unquote. And that was based on repeated accurate and comprehensive planetary observations obtained through the aid of multiple new and improved mathematical instruments. In what follows, I discuss a sample of the images printed in the Mechanica. I do so first in relation to the textual information with which they are accompanied, followed by a focused discussion of several images more specifically. The textual information of Tycho Brahe's Mechanica makes a claim for a renewal and a purification of astronomy by appealing to the precision and reliability of its multiple instruments. In the dedication to Rudolf II, Brahe confidently asserts that his instruments are more accurate for examining stellar phenomena because they are larger and more excellent and because they exhibit the highest accuracy and dependability. Describing his methods, Brahe also highlights the prestige of astronomy due to its connection to the sense of sight and the importance of instruments in aiding vision. He says that in astronomy, it is first of all necessary to obtain very many observations taken over a long period of time by means of instruments that are not liable to error. He adds that in order to prove observations free of error, it is necessary to investigate the same measurements by different means, using different instruments that are at hand. Using multiple instruments also facilitates the work of six to eight researchers conducting experiment and taking measurements simultaneously. And he ends that section by, by saying how wonderful this whole process of collaboration is. The textual information also provides information about how the instruments are used and how they are made. So for instance, each instrument featured in the book illustrates on the verso, it's accompanied on the recto by a written account that describes in detail its use, how it is made, its components and materials and emphasizes its accuracy over older, less precise instruments already used in astronomers. Yet, as suggested in the description of the instrument with which I began, the graphic presentation of the instruments obscures the claim to precision through ornamentation and reliance on multiple perspectives that, that appeal to embodied viewing, to the senses more than to rationality. The question I pose then, how was, so, unquote, quote, scientific knowledge, unquote, mediated in these images of instruments that invest in artistic forms and visual embellishments. Better yet, what type of knowledge was mediated through these prints? I began this talk with a description of the equatorial armillary illustrated on the top left, where I drew attention to an apparent disjointedness between the head of the instrument and its body, suggested through adherence to a skewed perspective. A similar no notion seems to be at play in the print of the medium-sized azimuth quadrant of brass, in this picture, the base that supports the instruments um, is composed of five plinths, and a donut-shaped stool that envelopes a central tube of the instrument appears to be leaning towards us. If our vantage point allows us to see so much of its surface, we should also be able to view more of the top green plinths that support the quadrant. 
Another perspectival inconsistency is the manner in which the plants are oriented, particularly the ones closest to the observer. Its base appears to be strangely twisting to the left. If these are the instruments of Brahe's renewed astronomy that derives evidence from experience and accurate observation, why are they portrayed so strangely? The instruments of the mechanica are presented in a manner that draws attention to the main component of the instrument, the part that does the measuring. Generally speaking, the full-page illustrations of Brahe's instruments are depicted occupying a simple space. Sometimes they rest on a piece of turf, as seen in the small quadrant of gilt brass, suggesting an outdoor setting, or in a checkered floor with sharply receding orthogonal, such as the sextant mounted for the observations of altitudes, and the medium-sized azimuth quadrant of brass. In the central image, the sharply receding orthogonals give the illusion that the instrument is pushed towards the space of the observer. In a sextant, this is re reversed, and the instrument is pushed back uh, to, to an imaginary space that appears to be simultaneously inside and outside. Um, other times, the instruments occupy space, a flat space with a low horizon line, such as the bipartite arc, where they stand within a recessed architectural rotunda inside a crypt, such as the great equatorial armillary and the perlactic or ruler instrument on the right. Most are portrayed outdoors, set against a dramatic sky that moves from nearly white at the horizon to a dark blue at the top of the picture plane. In some cases, the foreground either consists of a non-specific flat platform that takes on architectural elements, the series of steps that you see leading up to the instruments here. The astronomical sextant for measuring altitudes and the paralytic or ruler instrument, um, in which case the latter is, seems to be escaping from its enclosed frame. Overall, the manner of portraying the instruments generates interest and draws attention to the instrument proper, the part that does the measuring. Other instruments that appear to be set simultaneously indoors and outdoors represent those that were located in underground crypts at the observatory. As Brahe describes in the accompanying text, their purpose was to protect the larger instruments from the elements. Here, the, in the Mechanica, the revolving azimuth quadrant and the great steel quadrant, respectively, are depicted in a manner that allows the viewer access to not only the interior of the crypt that features the entire instrument, but also its exterior. The viewer is thus given near complete access to the instrument and the space it occupies along with the heavens. Another feature that encourages um, engaged viewing of the printed instruments is the relative sparing use of ornament. It is generally restricted to the base of the instruments or the transition between the head of the instrument and its base. For example, one of the more decorative bases may be noted in the print of the medium-sized azimuth quadrant of brass, where aside from the plinths that contain minor geometric designs, you can see scrolling ornament serpents acting as supportive elements for the quadrant proper. The serpents appear to attach the quadrant to the horizontal azimuth right below it. This instrument also has, that has alidades that appear to be decorated with winding leaf motifs and scrolls. Due to being restricted to the base, the ornament serves to contrast and draw attention to the instrument proper that is undecorated, to the parts that does the measuring. A similar mechanism is at play in the one illustrated on the right. Now, I was going to discuss iconography, but I'm going to skip over this part and just to, and just to point out that um, in order to understand the iconography, you have to really read the, the text that accompanies it. It's difficult to make out what it is based on um, just the visual um, image here. So I'm going to move on to the next discussion. Each one of Brahe's instruments in the Mechanica portrays a unique and one-kind portrait, one-of-a-kind portrait of his instruments. Through composition, use of space, skewed perspective, and purposeful use of ornament and iconography, the images direct the viewer's sight, provide visual pleasure, and ask to be looked at attentively. 
The printed instruments do not declare their purpose, but ask the viewer to inspect, similar to the way the astronomer would have to look carefully while obtaining precise measurements of the heavens. Brahe's Mechanica presents the instruments of Brahe's renewed astronomy, the key, the key tools of his science. However, one print in particular, the fifth instrument or uh, mural or Tychonian quadrant, demonstrates Brahe's methods in the form of a narrative image. Um, I'm not going to discuss it in full detail here, unfortunately, but um, there's a lot going on here. Basically, what this print is featuring is a notion of collaboration. You can see the three um, assistants in the front of the quadrant working together, taking measurements, taking time, taking notes. And in the background, we have what is actually a mural that was painted at one of his palatial observatories, where you have um, Brahe pointing towards the opening where uh, the measurement is taken through. And in the background, we have his instruments um, that are displayed and work being done in collaboration. And what I say about this image is the fact that what, um, what, it is, what it's doing is that it serves a visual narrative function of highlighting and promoting Brahe's methods to his brokers, to Rudolf, and to us, and emphasizes the importance of observation, patronage, loyalty, and of course the use of his many instruments used in collaboration with others. Now, um, all things that contribute to the establishment of an observationally grounded astronomy. However, while the textual information describes the use and composition of each instrument, this paper proposes that it is the images of instruments that both articulate, demonstrate, and allow the viewer to experience Brahezner's methods firsthand. Um, Each print presents a one-of-a-kind instrument, a portrait that addresses the viewer directly. Each printed instrument occupies the entire picture plane at times allowing multiple perspectives to the viewer, a greater degree of an obstructed access, drawing the viewer into the picture. Through the application of colored gouache and gold paint on key metallic surfaces and through the sparing use of ornament, our attention is drawn to key components of the instruments, particularly the parts that do the measuring, such as the circumference and the allodates. By asking the viewer to consider and inspect multiple instruments in succession, the instruments emphasize repetition and thus reliability. Since more measurements obtained through the aid of multiple instruments pictured here yield more accurate results. Looking closely to inspect the instruments, we perform the role of the astronomer who, in order to obtain reliable measurements, must also look closely and take measurements multiple times. The images thus offer the opportunity to participate in Brahe's new methods. They function to impress upon us the ingenuity of their design, their quality was promoted through the presentation of the whole book, reliability, and their agency in purifying the science of astronomy. Brahe's goal as embodied by the gift of the Mechanica as a whole. Thank you. Splendid. Thank you very much. We're continuing with a paper by Jennifer Nelson, who's assistant professor in the Department of Art History, Theory, and Criticism at the Art Institute in Chicago. Uh, she holds a PhD in History of Art from Yale. She works and teaches on Europe in the 15th through the 17th centuries, with an emphasis on European orientations towards globalism and on history of science and technology. Her art historical work has appeared or is forthcoming in a number of journals, including the Journal for Medieval and Early Modern Studies, 16th Century Journal, Source, Notes in the History of Art, and the Journal for Cultural and Religious Theory. And her title today is Basilisco Elefanto Tiruno, The Holzschuler War Machines Revisited.
Whoops, I changed my title, but thank you for that very nice introduction. And thanks so much, Nick, for putting this together. This is great. Throwing some new work at you. So, very excited. Um, my talk today is about a very unusual last will and testament made in Nuremberg in 1558. The testament takes the form of a manuscript with 42 folios, each of which is about 45 by 38 centimeters. Um, it was composed by the scion of a Nuremberg patrician family, Berthold Holtschur, who was 47 years old at the time, um, and he had the help of an artist, Albrecht Glockenden the Younger. Um, for those of you keeping score, this is the younger younger. There were two younger. Um, okay, first question, why would you need an artist to make your last will and testament? Right, so normally a testament states which assets and properties are going to be left to which heirs, and this was also true in 1558 in Nuremberg. And Holtschuer at first adheres to this sort of typical legal format of a holographic will at this time. But as we turn the pages, the testament diverges quickly from the usual format. On the second page, the handwriting uh, changes, unfortunately, into Kurhenschlift. And what it does, Holtschuer starts bragging about the contents of this document. It includes some kind of a previously unheard of machine that he's decided to call Basilishko. It is an unstoppable war machine. <laughs> what it is good for, he says, is to go into the enemy camp and smelt it down, or just pay it a little recon visit. Or you could, in any case, just go in and out as you please, with force, without resistance. The document continues, and Holtzschuh's tone changes. He gets increasingly specific about various details and various contingencies, like a lot of details and contingencies. <laughs> like, what if the machine has to climb a mountain? What if it has to climb out of a trench? How will the operators of the Bajalishko keep the gunpowder from spilling inside? In general, these details and contingencies, which are listed paratactically without almost any framework, are saturated with precise measurements. This hole should be four inches wide and one foot deep. This axle should be nine feet long and six inches wide, so on and so forth. Finally, the onslaught of detail relents um, for this general comment in a portrait of Holtschuer as a polymathic man of learning. Um, more later on these two pages, I don't want to delay any longer the impact of this wonderful machine. <laughs> Basilisko, here it is. Okay, so as you would see if you were looking through this, if you're going through the following pages, um, not only has Holtschuer commissioned this amazing image of the machine in action, but he has also arranged for Glockenden the Younger to show several of the inner mechanisms of this machine. Not all of them, not literally step by step like some IKEA hungry scholars would have you believe, but the steps do give more of a sense of temporality than any mere exploded view design, um, another kind of design that's very famous from this period. And by the way, the Basilishko is only one of four new inventions in the book included in this way. So historically, uh, in the historiography rather, there are a couple of reasons why this testament has been considered important. First of all, it was at the time unheard of to leave intellectual property to one's heirs. Um, he was leaving these designs to his eldest son, who was then to sell them at profit. Suitable buyers, as the will stipulates, are those who are not only Christian, but also who would never ally themselves with unchristians, unchristen. Okay? Second of all, 
the designs, especially the inner mechanisms that I just raced us through, are all drawn to scale. Okay? And the scale is clearly indicated in each case in the caption. Right here in this larger scale two-page spread, um, he tells us it's been reduced for Yingit um, <clears throat> at the scale of a complete inch. So every inch in this drawing corresponds to a Roman foot in real life. Every single manuscript is like this with just unheard of consistency, to use his language. This idea of all the drawings being to scale is not totally new, or even one drawing being to scale is not totally new. Durer, Albrecht Durer did this in his treatise on fortification 30 years earlier. So here you see a line of a certain length corresponds to 25 feet, 50 feet, or 100 feet. So in Holtschuer's work, though, this principle does not just apply in like broad strokes to a very large defensive structure. Literally, it's everything that you saw from cannons to tiny gear teeth is rendered to scale consistently. And so, you know, one might think um, Holtzscher is copying other manuals by people who worked with machines, non-published materials or that may not survive today, um, you know, sort of the sort of craft regime of representation. Um, but even if he wasn't doing that, he's certainly at least pushing an innovation that Durer had already published further, right, into the realm of minutiae. Either way, he seems aware of the importance of his use of scale, because this is precisely what this introductory blurb in the Fraktor script is about. So very patiently, as if he's talking to a small child, he explains what each scale reduction means. It is all based on the Roman foot, he says, whether it says a whole inch, half inch, or quarter inch. So if it's reduced to the whole inch, then a whole inch is a whole foot. If it's reduced to a half inch, then a half inch is a whole foot. If it's reduced to a quarter inch, then a quarter inch means a whole foot for the entire huge mechanism. Then, as if encouraging a child, he says in that little second paragraph, what is appropriate for this is a diligent attentiveness, a good head, a straight compass, ruler, and square. There on the facing page on the right, we see the appropriate parental role model, Holtschuer himself. In 1558, Holtschuer's heir, Berthold the Younger, was seven years old. He and his brother and sister had lost their mother a year before childbirth. Holtschuer was, in fact, writing to a child. And this is the premise of my approach to this object. What does it mean to put all of this in service of communicating to a child? What if we think about these paper designs in terms of heritage rather than inheritance, or at the same time, at the very least? When I first began to study this object, I pushed this approach to the maximum. Um, the German scholar who's done the most work on this before, um, certain parts of it, Rainer Lang, has noted that none of the objects actually function. Do, um, he claims, and I need to investigate this further, to a faulty setup of gear ratios. Lang also noted that even though the will does have an invocatio, an intitulo, um, section which are common to wills, it does lack other common elements to a proper testament in mid-16th century Nuremberg. There's no signature, there are no witnesses, there's no seal, no other means of verification for this document. Um, and nor, I would add, is there any indication that there are pages missing. There's, there's no extra stuff that we don't have today, necessarily. However, apparently, uh, I discovered that Holtschuer did receive an imperial privilege, and all that it lists in the archive is for Einige Kunstwerke, so for some devices, um, in 1558. Previously, this privilege has been connected by scholars to Holtschuer's inventions, processing salt water um, from salt mines, but the evidence for his salt mining activity doesn't start till 
1562 in another area in Germany. So I'm thinking actually that maybe he, he took this seriously. The 1558 privilege does correspond to the inventions in this manuscript. So therefore, he was taking it seriously. You know, whether or not we should, he was taking it seriously, at least at one point, as a source of income for his heirs. And this makes sense. In his lifetime, Holzschuer um, was responsible for several inventive schemes. He established a copper grinding facility in Steiermark, or Styria, in his 30s. In, his early, in the early 1560s, so after this, he invents a straw graduation house, that salt mining, salt processing uh, thing I mentioned earlier. And then later, most famously of all, for anyone who knows about this financial history, uh, in the 1560s, he invents the first insurance for humans, a kind of dowry insurance. So Holschuer seems to have had a lifelong sense of confidence in his inventive capabilities, even if some of these ideas didn't actually find purchase in reality. So therefore, I think one reason for the elaboration of the technical designs, the extensive notes on detail and contingency, is that he obviously wanted future artisans to be able to understand them. Um, I think the inventive elaborations and step-by-step, -step, the use of scale, um, almost certainly reflect a contemporary idiom of machine designs that does not survive, right? <clears throat> he wanted people to take his son seriously. The extensive textual preoccupation with minutiae, right? With far less order than any contemporarily published treatise like Agricola or Rivius, um, coupled with that almost paranoiac attention to possible circumstances. Again, is this, it, there's a similar gist. Um, he wanted to anticipate all possible contexts for the use of these inventions to make the designs as universally realizable as possible for his children. <laughs> but at the same time, I think that line here about you know, needing a good head, good tools, non-ADD, uh, I think that's also kind of telling. He wanted his son to inherit his sense of good mechanical know-how and good solid construction. And I think there are other kinds of knowledge and values that he wanted his son to inherit. So therefore, in the few minutes I have left, I'd like to draw out some of the elements of what I call heritage design in this manuscript. Those of you who are familiar with your artillery history will remember that certain cannons, uh, popular in the German states around the time of Maximilian and in Elizabethan England, Maximilian I, um, were called basilisks. Those of you, however, who, like educated people in 1558, are familiar with your Pliny, um, probably have your hackles raised by the idea that Holtschuer would have been referring to cannons when he used the word basilisk. Holtschuer's probable intermediary for Pliny was Georgius Agricola, whose treatise on mining, De Re Metallica, had appeared in 1556, two years earlier. So Holtschuer, with his inventorly aspirations, interested himself in the tome, no doubt, right? His family finances depended a lot on mining operations in Steiermark. So as far as I can tell, appended to this text, even in the first edition, uh, was Agricola's earlier book of 1549, De Animantibus Subterranees. And at the end of the tome, you know, where this is appended, um, this is where Agricola transmits Pliny on the basilisk. The basilisk is, basilisk is the most deadly creature. Its poison is worse than that of any other serpent. Living things wither, not only from touching it, but just from having its breath fall upon them. So incidentally, the influence of Agricola's text as a model is also visible in the manner in which Holtschuer has chosen to lay out these pages, or maybe Glockenden had done this with Glockenden's help. Um, not hidden away, these, these letters that refer to elements in the drawings are not hidden away in text blocks the way Durer did it and other earlier treatise writers, but neatly on top of the, the image itself. 
Now this figure here with that quadrant, right, hanging out near the cannons, this figure indicates to me another model um, for, for, um, for, for this document that Holtschuer seems to have come up with. I was looking for pictures of machines that looked like the Basilishko and contemporary um, you know, treatises about war or even imagery of war, but most images around 1550 focus either on massive engagements with infantry or on cannon-based sieges. But there is one text that I am pretty sure Holtschuer encountered that has an illustration that might vaguely remind you of that Basilishko. And it is the same text where he would have seen that soldier hanging out with a quadrant at the cannon. Right? This is Rivius, um, Gualteris Hermanos Rivius, or Volto Riff, his encyclopedic 1547 companion to his forthcoming translation of Vitruvius into German. So this is, uh, these are images from a hand-colored edition in Dresden. They're not all hand-colored like this. And unfortunately, that color kind of obscures those dragon heads, which does you know, appear again on the Basilishko. Moreover, Rivius's discussion here, just a couple of pages prior to this image, of how terrifying Ottoman Turks are in battle is the inspiration, I believe, for Holtzschewer's designs and testament. The text is two pages long and is followed first by the colophon of the Nuremberg printer Petraeus and then by this image I'm showing you on the right. In the text, the first page and the top of the second focuses on how terrifying the Turks are, how forceful their artillery assault is with no way of resisting it. Um, there are many examples, but even the Sophie, the then-famed Shah Ismail of Safavid Persia, with his superior numbers, this text says, was defeated by the Ottoman artillery assault. The second page of this text, however, most of it, affirms that nothing happens in nature without a force to counterbalance it. And on this page, human schafzinnigkeit, or mental acuity, is mentioned three times, with human reason mentioned even more often, as well as Kunst und Wissen, art and knowledge, all of this being a kind of cipher for ingenuity, which some scholars have shown is a special theme for Rivius. The reader here is explicitly and repeatedly exhorted not to believe that resistance is futile, to apply one's own invention to the task. And it is this call that I believe Holtschuer's testament answers. The comparison is an awkward one to make, but it is one that Holtschuer, responding to Rivius's call, invites. This testament's request for his son to have diligent attentiveness, a good head, and good engineering tools is a kind of anti-melancholy for confronting the future. But the Basilishko presented here certainly embodies a ferocious wish fulfillment. The, clear, the image clearly features Ottomans and some French allies. I'm sorry, I can't see it from this angle, but I think those are the three fleur-de-lis that match the three stars with the Ottoman crescent. So clearly the French are the forbidden buyers that ally themselves with the Unchristen. Um, these are the intended enemies of the Basilishko. So Albrecht Glockenden the Younger is recorded as an illuminator, yes, but his primary area of activity was in designing and rendering coats of arms. He paid attention to these kinds of details. And I wonder then if the artist's own contribution to this heritage design is in fact an astonishing attempt at specificity about Ottoman insignia. Is this suffering Turkish soldier adorned with a tukhra the seal of the Sultan Suleiman himself. The calligraphy was designed to be difficult to copy, but it did appear on Ottoman armor, and especially on the helmets. And here it seems Glockenden has misunderstood it as a stylized B on that breastplate. But I think he was trying. 
As I continue further with my research into heritage design in this period and with this object, I'm hoping to further pursue the parallel development of modes of inquiry, one potentially adaptable to understanding and other modes adapted perhaps more to fear and paranoia. This testament definitely contains both. Thank you. Terrific, thanks so much. Our third speaker is Suzanne Karschmidt, who since March 1st of this year is the George Amos Poole III Curator of Rare Books and Manuscripts at the Newberry Library. She holds a BA in the History of Art and Architecture and Visual Art from Brown and a PhD in Art History from Yale. Her dissertation will be appearing next week, courtesy of Brill, and it'll be entitled Interactive and Sculptural Printmaking in the Renaissance and it studied the historical context of early paper engineering, the Renaissance pop-up book. She also uh, curated an exhibit which was published as Altered and Adorned Using Renaissance Prints in Daily Life. And um, her topic is on pop-up books, Making Time and Space, Collecting Early Modern Pictured Instruments. Is that right? Printing instruments, thank you. Unfortunately, I discovered the object you're seeing up there uh, earlier earlier this week, and I will not have time to talk about it, but it's the, at the Newberry. Uh, one of the richest areas of hybrid artistic media crossing the boundaries between prints and objects in the early modern period is the printed scientific instrument, which was especially common in southern Germany. These astrolabe, quadrant, and sundial prints were first conceived as experimental substrates in the maker's workshop they then became versatile sheets admired and acquired for both their function and their graphic qualities, and ultimately, they were seen as purely collectible works of art or design. In the mid-16th century, artists, humanists, and nobles alike collected these printed navigational, surveying, and time-telling instruments in tandem with similar devices made of more durable materials. Prints that have been lost are documented in inventories and epistolary exchanges between scholars and their patrons. Rarely, examples of the physical prints survive in unassembled manuals or kits, in makers' workshop albums, or commingled with more graphic works in collectors' print albums, or pasted as veneers onto wooden supports for use, for use as three-dimensional instruments. Sometimes, constructive models were subsequently taken apart, as in the Newberry example seen here. Uh, when they were stored as works on paper, they became part of a diagrammatic, mathematic, and cartographic continuum. But when they remained permanently applied as veneers for new instruments, they were generally no longer inventoried as prints. This paper examines the historical basis for their early reception. Instrument printers were usually highly educated professors or clergymen, learned men with wide social circles of humanist friends. The Ingolstadt professor Peter Appian, who was ennobled by Emperor Charles V for his Astronomicum Caesarium of 1540, which you see on the left, and Georg Hartmann, uh, vicar of St. Sebald in Nuremberg, were two particularly well-connected mathematicians and printed instrument makers. Uh, whether produced in kits as, as single sheets or as book illustrations excerpted from letterpress texts, their prints recur throughout later collector albums dedicated to the joint subject of instruments and maps. Appian offered several manuals on navigation and time-telling with didactic interactive Volvel dials, such as his earlier Cosmographia Liber, first published in 1524. The quadrants in his instrument book 
1533 were repeated as both instruments and as standalone woodcut instruments. We'll see a little bit about that later. Hartman published few lengthy texts, but offered many more finely worked instrument engravings waiting to be constructed into astrolabes, and four large edition woodcuts of sundials and astrolabes, which you're seeing one set on the right. Uh, throughout his career, Hartman would proudly send packets of instrument prints to uh, scholars and patrons in nearby Augsburg and further afield to Prussia to advertise the variety of his paper inventions. Central to printed instrument production were workshop albums compiled from substantial stores of makers' uh, work and related prints that inspired subsequent prints. As Gig Hartman would have been well aware, the 15th century mathematician Johannes Regiomontanus, who also settled in Nuremberg previously, printed the first paper sundial in his 1474 calendarium, which you see on the, on the wall. Uh, Hartman's workshop album at the Bayerisches Staatsbibliothek in Munich uh, does not include Regiomontanus woodcuts, though several of his, of his engravings follow those designs. And you can see um, one of the things in there. Uh, yet the album contains several hundred prints. Most of these were intermediate states from Hartman's own oath, but many represent works from other authors, including an early quadrant woodcut component by Peter Appian, which you see here. Hartman's workshop album supports the notion of prints begetting instrument prints. Indeed, it becomes a frenzied riot of creation, complete with annotated and trim pieces tipped in throughout, some with holes cut into them, or impressions partially mounted on pasteboard backings. So you see a little... little uh, hole here. This has been removed from this page, I believe. While instrument makers edited and destroyed their own prints while furthering pro uh, workshop projects, early modern prints and map collectors' uh, albums integrated the instruments as two-dimensional prints. This combination suggests a continuity of thinking about them as both prints and as the assembled three-dimensional objects they represented. Two albums filled almost exclusively with gay apartment prints were acquired by Duke August the Younger of Braunschweig Lüneburg in the, um, in the 17th century, and later by his son, Ferdinand Albrecht. One of them includes a, a Giovanni Vespucci ter uh, terrestrial globe dating to around 1525, and the 1531 Sebastian Munster woodcut wall sundial seen here. A serious uh, map and woodcut collector, uh, and globe collector, Duke August also owned numerous clocks and sundials in various materials, ranging from two made from uh, paper pasted on wood by, by Hans Georg Hertel, also a 17th century artist, to a gold-plated example inset in the cover of a notebook. His printed books also included two copies of the interactive 1575 Astrolabium um, on the right by, uh, by Turnizer Zoom Tarn. It's a very crazy, crazy object and very rare. He had two of them. Uh, Duke August's grandfather and father employed Johannes Krabbe, an astronomer and an instrument maker to design and update a printed astrolabe for them, while uh, August's son later added Appian's Astronomicum Caesarium to the collection. So you see on the, on the left, that's the, the Krabbe uh, completed uh, astrolabe. Uh, in contrast to these, the, um, and especially in contrast to the, to the, the Munich book, the Wolfenbüttel uh, albums with a great component of Hartmann prints in them as well are absolutely pristine, including um, so the prints are really treated more like fine art than working diagrams in this case. Most pages include only one carefully aligned print, though up to three are spliced evenly onto conjoined pages. And this is actually a print that only survives in this particular case, probably the early one that builds an octahedral sundial, actually uh, prism. In the case of a print series or kits with astrolabe fittings, diptych sundials, and globe gores, the prints appear meticulously grouped together in ascending latitude order. So. 
In contrast to Hartman's albums, Peter Appian's illustrated 1530s handbooks for university students offered explanatory text as well as woodcut instruments that were intended to be constructed, just like, like uh, Hartman's materials. A 1598 inventory of the pioneering Kunstkammer of Duke Albrecht V of Bavaria specifically lists fünf albianisches Quadranten auf Holzgesuchen, five quadrants by Appian pasted onto wood. The inventory grouping suggests they were stored together and still recognizes Appian's works uh, some over 60 years after their initial publication. These instruments were likely made directly from woodcuts taken from the Duke's copies of Appian's Cradons uh, Appiani, Horoscopian Appiani, and Instrument Book. Between them, one could build a continuous set of four quadrants covering the geographical latitudes of 41 to 52, plus a fifth universal quadrant. So he's really covering his bases there. Appian introduced the suite in the instrument book by saying explicitly that the separate uh, series of prints, which were printed only on one side of the paper, were not to be bound into a book. Instead, he meant them to be constructed separately on wood, taking on concrete shape as examples of actual instruments. Tellingly, most books now lack the extra suites of one-sided plates. And this is sort of the description here. Otto Heinrich, uh, known as Otto Heinrich, the Elector of the Palatine and, and the Rhine, who um, this is another collector, obviously, who, who designed and monogrammed his own gilt copper sundial in 1547, which is now at the Adler in Chicago, also owned numerous printed instruments, as well as a significant print and book collection. A 1557 inventory of his Neuburg Studiolo mentions a wooden sun, uh, cylinder wrapped in a schematic sundial print by an unspecified maker, which was colored and possibly gilded. Uh, uh, there was, there's also a, um, a Gepaps Torologium Planetarium, which is similar to an astrolabe with gold lettering in the Munich's Kunstkammer, and that may have been another print with, with stacked dials, like a ball bell, um, which may have been pasted onto pasteboard, like, like the instruments uh, by Hartman here, uh, both in engraved and uh, woodcut form, and at the very bottom from the Adler uh, brass uh, astrolabe. Other nearby items in the Adra Heinrich inventory were historically important older brass astrolabes or bejeweled timepieces, suggesting that paper sundials or other devices that could be illuminated and varnished, uh, uh, like, uh, like these um, uh, Durer, uh, Durer, Durer uh, celestial charts, also in his collection, though not these copies, uh, uh, could, could coexist with, with the uh, original materials. So there might have been a little bit, a bit of a guessing game as to how things were made. And uh, one of the things was the sundial that I mentioned before, and I just mocked up a sort of a silly version of what might happen if you uh, illuminated a, a Hartman cylindrical sundial. And that's actually in the colors of, uh, of, uh, of, of some of the nobles involved. <laughs> yes, so uh, I, didn't, I didn't have a wooden, a wooden sphere, uh, cylinder to put it on, though. Um, so as we mentioned, there were uh, all of these, all of these individuals are are collecting everybody in this vein, including Appian, um, Nicholas Kratzer, Ernst Dine, et cetera. So it was really, it really sort of was a closed group. And unfortunately, the elector's inventories don't don't ever specify whether he ever assembled the, the printed instruments himself in the way that he that he produced etched uh, etched sundials. So we have we have one we have a little bit of uh, of letter evidence of Hartman sending his his uh, printed instruments around, and you're looking at this with, uh, with light behind it. And I was looking at, at watermark evidence, and some of the prints are actually made using the same paper. Um, uh, so, so this is in the 1540s, where, where given the correspondence, we're able to date, to, uh, to date the, um, some of the earliest prints as well. 
and he repeatedly talks to, to the Duke Albrecht of Preussen and says, I'm sending you this wonderful group of prints. Did you get them? What did you think? But what he's able to do with printed instruments, which he printed himself from his own press, is that he can actually send his entire oeuvre of, of up to 50 prints at the time in one, in one uh, box or possibly even a tube in the way that, that, uh, that, that books would have been shipped at this point. And it's, it's much easier. If it goes missing, you could send another set. But he's very, very uh, insistent on the fact that he's making these and that they're important instruments in the way that the Duke also, that also collected them. So I'm just going to come to a little conclusion, and this is a little harder to visualize, but um, that is actually two sides of one Hartman print. So the impact of scientific instrument prints from this early period ranged beyond the circulation of sundials among no nobles and humanists. While these prints offered a versatile hybrid print object for experimentation in the workshop context, instrument makers fought against the transformation into a purely collectible category from the beginning. Print purchasers could easily ignore instructions, like Peter Appian's demand for a different treatment of images printed on a double-sided page with versotext than single-sided ones. Yet, rather than initially being seen as curiosities in the Munich Kunstkammer, their potentially dual uh, value as illustrations and functional objects was apparent. Gerhard Hartmann appears to have experimented with literally double-sided instrument printing only once in 1561 for this pair of vertical sundials now in Nuremberg. One of these sundials is concave, and the other is convex. Printing them on the same sh thick sheet of paper before shaping them into their prescribed curvature may have seemed a logical way to avoid the errors of alignment of two separate sheets of paper glued onto a thicker support. The printing registration is slightly imprecise on the double engraving, and thus the plate mark from one, one, plate shows, uh, one side shows through the other. The shape of the, pl the plates is so similar that this impression suggests they may even have been taken from the two sides of the same plate. Uh, without the heft of metal or the warmth of ivory to give the impression support, however, only this one of Hartmann's most purely printed instruments in the round has survived. Reggio Montanus achieved a similar effect for his pioneering paper instruments by printing on thick paper stock so the metal fittings for his sundials and volvals would not break through the page. But Hartmann's double sundial did not require anything more than uh, wire gnomons to cast the shadows. Uh, he actually he tells you the length. I believe it's down there of how long it's supposed to be. Uh, he supplies the length and makes his uh, variation an exercise in graphic and functional simplicity. Both Peter Appian and Gary Hartman adapted two-dimensional printmaking with the aim of helping the user create three-dimensional instruments with which they could further explore the world. These hybrid objects appealed to scholars and nobles alike, and they pushed the boundaries of the didactic print far beyond the static diagram or the illusionistic graphic field, delighting collectors long after the printed instruments cease to represent current knowledge. Thank you. Splendid. Thank you very much. So we've had three papers about the 16th century, and to end, <laughs> we're going to take a medievalist perspective. Our last speaker is Ellie Truitt, who's Associate Professor of Medieval History at Bryn Mawr, so she's basically local. She's the author of Medieval Robots, Mechanism, Magic, Nature, and Art, published by the University of Pennsylvania Press 2015. She's currently working on a number of projects, including an article on translation in Chaucer's Treatise on the Astrolabe, a new translation of her work by Roger Bacon, and a book about Roger Bacon's speculative technology, from which we'll hear today, on the necessity of invention, Roger Bacon's speculative technology.
Um, first, I'd like to thank Anne for that uh, introduction and also Nick for organizing this panel and all of you for being here today. Let me just pull up. This has an old title, sorry. Here we go. According to 13th century scholastic philosopher Roger Bacon, a more complete understanding of natural laws and the properties of things would foster wonderful inventions, incredibly fast conveyances that can move independent of animal power, submarines and diving bells for exploring the ocean floor, machines for human flight, alchemical processes that could prolong life, and mirrors and lenses that could set fire to entire armies or produce terrifying and delightful optical illusions. These speculative technologies exemplify the promise of scientia experimentalis, Bacon's theory of technology, which authenticated natural knowledge and offered a blueprint for how human ingenuity could harness the secret, untapped potential of nature. But what this also um, suggests is how to talk about instruments or machines that don't exist and that the author does not know how to make. So Bacon first explicated his idea of scantia experimentalis, which is often unhelpfully, if literally translated as experimental science, in his opus Maius, circa 1266. So experience, that is knowledge gained from observation or other sensory perception, confirms and also corrects rationality, reasoning from first principles or knowledge gained from texts, and is necessary to a full understanding of natural things. The purpose of Scantia Experimentalis was threefold, to affirm or refute theories, to create instruments or machines to pursue knowledge, and to uncover the secrets of nature. Over the next few minutes, I will explore some of Bacon's source material for the fantastical machines and inventions that he proposed, and argue that scientific, political, and imaginative texts alike influenced his ideas of what kinds of machines could be possible or even necessary. Like many other scholars of the 13th century, Bacon was strongly influenced by earlier Arabic scientific texts, particularly Ibn al-Haytham's work on optics, and Philip of Tripoli's translation of the Kitab Sir al-Asrar into the Secretum Secretorum, or Secret of Secrets. These texts, which Bacon encountered in Paris, offer explanations of how human ingenuity might use nature to create machines, instruments, or effects. Yet the Alexander Romance tradition also played a role, as in many versions of this widely adapted narrative, Alexander encounters many different marvels, including manufactured marvels and strange machines. So I just want to take a few minutes and get into a more complete definition of Scantia Experimentalis. Bacon sets out and explains this concept in his major works, the Opus Maius, Opus Minus, and Opus Tertium. And it was in these texts, all written between 1266 and 1268, that he introduced this idea. The concept is both a science in itself and a method applicable to all sciences. It is a method for the practical and theoretical sciences similar to that of logic, enabling the practitioner to discern magic or fraud from art and science or truth. He writes, this science alone, therefore, knows how to test perfectly what can be done by nature and what by the effort of art, what by trickery, what the incantations, conjurations, invocations, deprecations, and sacrifices that belong to magic mean and dream of, and what is in them, so that all falsity may be removed and the truth alone of art may be retained. 
This science alone teaches us how to view the mad acts of magicians, that they may not be confirmed but rejected, just as logic considers sophistical reasoning. According to Bacon, scanty experimentalis teaches people the meaning of things, and next to moral philosophy, it is the most useful for teaching an understanding of theology. Moreover, it can be used to forward the goals of the Catholic Church and Christian kingdoms because it both imparts useful natural knowledge and because it enables the creation of engines of war, such as burning mirrors, and of statecraft, such as tools for navigation. Put briefly, the first dignity or prerogative of scanty experimentalis concerns different ways of knowing things. Leaving aside divine illumination, there are two ways of knowing about nature, rationality or argumentum, and experience or experimentum. But relying purely on rationality, knowledge through syllogism, can leave room for doubt. Argumentum does not always provide certainty. He writes, for there are two modes of acquiring knowledge, namely by reasoning and by experience. Reasoning draws a conclusion, but does not make that conclusion certain, nor does it remove doubt so that the mind may rest in the understanding of the truth, unless the mind discovers it by way of experience. And then he gives the very apt example of, if you're told what fire does, you might know it, but you won't really know it until you burn yourself. <laughs> Bacon offers a critique of purely syllogistic thinking. Without both argumentum and experimentum, certainty is impossible. Bacon is not suggesting that theoretical knowledge is not valuable or important, rather that scantia experimentalis ratifies the knowledge found in authoritative texts and conveyed through syllogism, but it does not replace that knowledge. Yet rather confusingly, theoretical natural knowledge was not the only way to know things, as the second prerogative of scantia experimentalis is the creation of new instruments that, in turn, could test or yield new information about nature. For example, the magnet might be combined with the armillary sphere in order to yield new information about the cosmos. Bacon's interest in instruments or machines and their potential utility in both political and philosophical realms is apparent in several of his works from the mid-1260s and going forward. For example, he discusses the importance of instruments in his slightly later work on mathematics, and places the construction of instruments such as the astrolabe, mirrors, and military devices under the purview of geometry. Nor was Bacon the first to use experimentum or experientia. Indeed, the concept of using experience as a way to attain certainty about natural knowledge has many ancient antecedents as well as medieval Latin and Arabic adherents. Bacon cites the pseudo-Aristotelian Secretum Secretorum, as well as Aristotle's Meteorology, Galen, Pliny, and Ptolemy as proponents of the utility of experimentum. Indeed, he credits Ptolemy with the notion of scanty experimentalis in both his Opus Maius and his edition of the Secretum Secretorum, which he prepared in the 1270s. Many of Bacon's contemporaries or near contemporaries, both in Paris and in Oxford, also conducted experiments or discussed the importance of knowledge gained through sense experience. So I want to spend a little time now talking about some of Bacon's influences in this area. Between roughly 1247 and 1257, he pursued a self-funded career as an independent scholar, based, it seems, mainly in Paris, where he came into contact with a vibrant circle of experimenters there, as well as Latin translations of Arabic texts on instruments and experience. Bacon's course of independent study fell outside the curricula of both Oxford, where he studied, and Paris, where he taught. In 1268, he wrote of this period in his life, 
I have labored especially in the pursuit of wisdom, abandoning the opinions of the masses. I have spent more than 2,000 pounds on these studies for books of secrets, various experiences, languages, instruments, tables, and other things. He praised the work of Peter of Maricor on magnets, and he also studied during this period Greek and Hebrew, as well as Latin translations of Arabic works. In addition to the translation of Al-Kindi's work on astral science, especially the influence of cosmic bodies on earthly ones, Bacon was one of the first natural philosophers of the 13th century to take up Ibn al-Haytham's work on optics, the Kitab al-Manasir, written around 1030. This work, translated into Latin at the start of the 13th century as De Aspectibus and attributed to Al-Hazan, contested the Ptolemaic theory of visual perception by extramission, positing instead a theory of intromission, simply put that objects are perceived by the rays that they radiate to the eye. Bacon appears to have been one of the earliest to take up this theory of intromission in the 1260s, both in a brief work on visual perception and shortly after on a section of the Opus Maius on perspectiva or optics, and which later circulated as a standalone work. Relatedly, in order to gain knowledge of optical and visual perception, Ibn al-Haytham introduced a new concept that diverged from Aristotle's notion of imperia, or accumulated experience. The concept is called itibar, and it's rendered into Latin as experimentatio, a test to investigate physical properties directly, with the aid of an experimental apparatus especially designed for that purpose, he writes. And the aim of the proof was to bring certainty and precision to an observation by subjecting it to an artificial situation in which the conditions could be varied. This specific concept of proof is separate from imperia, but it is employed in confirming natural phenomena rather than in discovering new properties. Nevertheless, this idea proved important for Bacon, as he echoes it both in the idea of using scientia experimentalis as a way to confirm theories and the importance of specific instruments to do so. Bacon also spent time studying the Latin version of the Arabic pseudo-Aristotelian mirror for princes, the Kitab Sir al-Asrar, which, as I noted, was translated in full for the first time around 1230 into The Secret of Secrets. And this work, which Bacon likely encountered first in Paris in the 1240s, and he prepared this edition, his edition of it in the 1270s, circulated as an Aristotelian text that Aristotle, at the end of his life, had sent to his pupil, Alexander the Great. In it, he confided to Alexander the natural knowledge and secrets of nature that he had withheld from his earlier works out of care not to squander knowledge on a populace that was not prepared to receive it, but that Alexander, the great conqueror and empire builder, would need in order to be power, a powerful, canny, and just ruler. The Secretum Secretorum offers explanations of how human ingenuity might use nature to create machines for exploration of new terrain for, and for domination, alongside advice about health and astral science. And taken together, these works encouraged Bacon's ideas to develop along different lines and to consider utility as critically important to the enterprise of natural knowledge. It's possible that Bacon later needed to reassure his superiors in the Franciscan order of his own orthodoxy regarding natural philosophy, and so wrote a pamphlet to clarify his views, the Epistola de Secretis Aperibus Artis et Naturae et de Nullitate Magiae, Letter on the Hidden Powers of Art and Nature and the Invalidity of Magic. 
In this text, which dates from the 1270s, Bacon again explains how scanty experimentalis certifies theoretical natural knowledge. And in this work, he especially considers the second prerogative, or dignity of scanty experimentalis, making instruments. Using the full panoply of natural powers would result in astounding machines able to work marvels. But the effects that they produced were not um, caused by demons or due to trickery, but purely by the power of nature and the ability of the artisan. Bacon's description of the possibilities for new technologies afforded by scanty experimentalis rests in multiple temporalities. He uses the conditional tense and the subjunctive mood to point to a speculative future. Yet his evidence for many of these examples um, comes from the past. The impossibly fast chariots that he supposes are actually the scythe-bearing chariots of antiquity. Likewise, the submarine that can be used to explore the ocean floor is an ancient invention. He writes, for Alexander used these to see the secrets of the sea, according to what Ethicus, the astronomer, says. Optical devices that might allow one to see things very far away are also inventions of the past. Thus it is thought, he writes, that Julius Caesar on the shores of Gaul discovered by large mirrors the disposition and locations of the camps and cities of Great Britain. Even the most extraordinary device, the magnetic armillary sphere that turns with the daily motion of the heavens, is based on an invention of Ptolemy's. On the one hand, Bacon writes from a position of loss. These things used to exist, but do not any longer. But he also writes with the optimism that they can be built again in the future. He also, at the same time, conjures a future in which familiar objects, like ships or wings, become entirely new objects. He combines renovatio with innovatio, the recovery of past knowledge with the invention of a new future. The epistola contains several echoes of the Secretum Secretorum. Um, and like the Secretum Secretorum is addressed to a powerful though unnamed magnate, or sorry, the epistola is addressed to a powerful though unnamed magnate, possibly Henry III of England, it seems that throughout the epistola that Bacon is casting himself as Aristotle to some latter-day Alexander. The Secretum Secretorum was a text that shared common features with contemporary Alexander Romance tradition. Um, indeed, the same kinds of devices that Bacon mentions, and I just have a few to just show you here, appear in several versions of the history of Alexander from the same period. So here you see the optical device that Nectantibus uses, um, as well as here uh, a flying machine and a diving bell. Um, Although there's no direct evidence that Bacon was familiar with the old French Alexander Romance tradition, his Epistola de Secretis, the Secretum Secretorum, and the old French Alexander all express the idea that the time of Alexander was a time of amazing and useful inventions employed in the service of knowledge. So just to conclude, Bacon's inventions are Janus-faced. They oscillate between the past and the future, and between the familiar terrain of accepted authorities like Ptolemy and the novel ideas of foreign philosophers like Ibn al-Haytham, and from the academic register of natural philosophy to the literary expressions of the possibilities of human art. His view of technological change and possibilities is not progressive, but neither is it solely a, a narrative of regression and decline. Moreover, the instruments that he suggests are necessary to achieving certainty mirror the instrument, the organon, of argumentum, the syllogism. Bacon's instruments for certainty complement Aristotelian logic and propose a way of understanding and benefiting from natural knowledge 
that harmonizes or balances the tools of argumentum with those of experimentum. Thank you. Thanks so much to the very disciplined presentations of, and also the management by our organizers. So please, could the speakers come up and we'll have questions. Thank you. Um, I have a question. I have a question for Jennifer. Um, I, was, I loved your presentation. It was wonderful. And I was just really curious. I have to do that thing that medievalists do when they inject their medievalist perspective. Because, of course, I couldn't help but think of the treatise on the astrolabe, which is a highly technical work written by Chaucer that is also addressed uh, to mural San Luis. And so I was curious, um, what do you what can we make of these scientific treatises addressed to children that clearly the children, it's unlikely that the children are going to really fully parse all of this. And in the case of yours, you also have that really weird thing about, well, sometimes an inch is this, and sometimes it's this, and sometimes it's this, like asking this child to perform this mental gymnastics that is seems Particular, or, or actually maybe in some ways is very applicable to a child because children do perform mental gymnastics and imaginative gymnastics all the time. So I guess what I'm curious about is, um, have you found other treatises from this period that are addressed to children, and what do you make of the rhetoric of addressing a hyper-complex scientific treatise to a very small child? What I mean, you talked a little bit about her um, the heritage of knowledge, right? But what else is that move doing, do you think? Um, thanks so much for that question. Uh, I I haven't found a ton of like scientific ones addressed to children, but there are some Reformation treatises that are notionally addressed. That I, I think in the case we always have to think notionally addressed to children. Um, and I think the answer is different in these different cases. But for the for, for Chaucer and I think for Holtzuer, although in very different ways. Um, the child is a stand-in for a kind of tabula rasa, this kind of assumption that, you know, um, and there are two ways to deal with the tabula rasa. One is that you assume they know nothing <laughs> and then to maybe over-explain, but then also to just sort of uh, use as professional and detailed um, a system as you are familiar with, in fact. So, you know, you're kind of compensating on both sides. You want it to look as professional, so that's why I'm invoking craft rhetoric. Um, but also as sort of open and supple as possible. And so, you know, you're imagining people of the future, um, what are they gonna be like? Things are changing so fast, and people always feel that way. So, so yeah, you, you know, you just lost your way. Yeah, things are really changing. I also think it's a, a, the question of what, what, is, what is a child at this point? I mean, there, there, there are so many examples of of, of you know, child kings having dedications, especially at the 17th century, I'm thinking of. I'm sure it's working. But, um, but yeah, so what is, you know, what is the expected level of understanding of a 10-year-old in Chaucer's era? I don't, I, don't really, I don't really know. I mean, it's obviously we're going to be better educated in some things than a 10-year-old now, so. Um, that was a great question. Uh, also, I just wanted to point out that, it, from what I understand, Jennifer was talking about, that, that's a testament addressed to one person, whereas Chaucer's treatise, although addressed to his son, very quickly becomes clear that it's for any one, it's a textbook for, under, for learning how to use a widely available piece of technology, and so I think that also um, accounts for some of the differences as well. 
So um, I, I think actually Ellie's uh, comment leads into my question. One of the many fabulous things about this session was that we had discussions of objects that don't, or instruments that don't exist, representations of ones that do, instructions how to make ones, and then actual instruments. So my question is, um, do we find that these varieties of textual instruments are always gesturing to some other thing that's non-textual, uh, textual, or whether they're trying to make an argument for the textual object itself as self-sufficient to producing knowledge that is um, arrived at through handwork and craft. And that's for everyone. Yeah, a, a, number, a number of people in, in my period had it both ways. I mean, Appian certainly had didactic textbooks that did with, with ball bells that, that you could not use, you know, on the sea for, for, for navigation, and, but it would certainly, they might have moving parts, right. but it would point, that would point you towards the learning. Like a metal object. A metal, right? Uh, like, like are they pointing to another object that actually exists, or are they self-sufficient? Well, well, no, I mean, it, Probably we probably wouldn't have too many too mm -hmm. many paper things and you know near water, but um, <laughs> there, 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 there are actually some some instructions that say you want to varnish this after you're done wow. done laying it into the bowl, but um, but yeah there's but there, there are different levels you can you can certainly have didactic versus functional and but it's also it's also a cheaper version I believe the one the um, the a lot of the Chaucer era elements uh, could have been could have been on parchment just a manuscript uh, astrolite I think that's. That's, that was an option too. I don't know how many survived. Really briefly, I'll just say that um, so when Bacon's talking about Scanti Experimentalis and these machines, he's initially doing this in the Opus Maius, which is a text that he wrote at the request of the Pope, and that he's trying he's trying to convince the Pope to undertake a massive program of educational reform um, for the defense and expansion of Christendom. So he is absolutely, well, I think what he's trying to do is say, we need more, we need to put more R&D into this, basically. So because it is possible to make these devices because they have been made in the past, but he doesn't know how to do it. Um, and so he's not gesturing, I think, towards another instrument in so much as he's saying, this is what's possible if, but with the right kind of education and practice. Substitutes, supplements, or 
I don't know, in some way, the traces, it's immortal. I don't know. Anyway, it's like super interesting. Um, yeah, in answer to your question, I just feel like, I mean, I think I explicitly addressed this, like, were these really supposed to work? And for me, I really want like methodological help because it seems very clear now, like, despite what my desires, Holtzschuler did take this seriously. Um, but it seems, and, and I think maybe despite his desires, because I think there are a lot of things here that are more about this object sufficing in itself in a certain way. But that's not what he says, and that's not what that privilege tells us. So if I don't really like psychoanalysis, how am I going to deal with this methodologically? So anyway, sorry. I don't know if you want to respond to my crazy statement about observatories. Uh, sure. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, they are absolutely. You're pointing out how do these replace the the, the the instruments themselves, and I don't think that's what they're supposed to do because if they were, they would be done much differently. Because I'm sure Tycho had the means to appoint something uh, cutters, artists to make them look much different. But um, one thing I did mention in my presentation is the fact that uh, these were made over a period of time. A lot of them weren't made specifically for the Mechanica, some of them had been made previously. There's only a few that were actually made specifically for the Mechanica, like, like the Globe, which is, the engravings are much, much finer and, and prettier, what one could say. But um, overall, I still think that um, it does it does succeed in trying to make the person look at them a certain way, that uh, image that was really done based on observation um, in a way that's much more accurate, perhaps, if we want to use that term, that wouldn't be as, it just wouldn't do the same kind of work as, as the ones that they do. Um, yeah, I could, let's talk more. <laughs> yeah, sure, I'll try to make this quick. Um, so, I mean, on the one hand, right, the last paper reminds us that, of course, these books, these, uh, these textual instruments are all um, sort of cultivating a disposition toward experience as a method of knowledge creation, of course. But of course, the survival of the objects, when they survive, and I think all of these cases, is because they manage to cultivate a different disposition toward them, something more aesthetic, or a kind of experiential knowledge that is not about the technical and scientific components of them. And I guess I'm wondering, I was trying to track this across the papers, but to what extent do you think the designers of these objects were trying to cultivate that sort of extra scientific or technical knowledge as a condition for the experience that they were interested in? I just, I've been, um, it's going to, the term that Ivana introduced for portrait of an instrument. Yeah. And so what exactly does that mean? A certain amount of idealization, a certain amount of memorialization for the future. Um, anyway, maybe the two are linked. Mally, <laughs> Mally trying to write what you said, that was, that was interesting. Um, <laughs> cultivating technical extra-scientific practice. I think, um, well, for one thing, Tico uh, Bright's book did set a precedent for future um, mathematicians to start establishing um, their treatises on instruments accompanied by more detailed instruments. And that's something that surfaces even 80 years later in the work of uh, Johannes Vellius, for instance, who's actually really indebted to Tycho Brahe's um, method, and he uh, goes far and beyond to almost copy and build on uh, the tradition that he uh, that, uh, that he establishes. So um, there, there's that aspect. Um, in terms of the idealization of them, I'm not sure if we can really say that they're idealized because um, they're they're skewed, they're funny. There's things are twisted. It seems so purposeful. So. Um, <coughs> 
I'm just going to maintain that it's it's too really. It's about seeing. They want to be seen. It's, it's about looking closely. It's about in, about investing oneself and, and looking at them. Um, I forget what you what you mentioned. No. The idealization was part okay. of it. What do we get from thinking of these as portraits? Oh, the portrait part. Yes. Um, yes. Um, I was. If, if this had been a longer presentation, I would have loved to have dug into that a little bit more and include a picture of uh, a kind of portrait and, and kind of say what I mean by that. But with, with portraiture, I mean we're drawn to the face. We're looking at the face of the sitter most of the time, and that, that, that's how it's portrayed um, along with um, various other um, uh, things. But I think with, with the, the instrument, like what, I, what I was trying to say is that they're really trying to focus on the part of the instrument that doesn't measure it, and the most important aspect of it. And I think that's something that's all, that often happens in portraiture. And so there could be more to be said about that. Hartman's instruments end up with, with a ridiculous amount of heraldry on them, depending on who they're for. So that's a sort of embedded portraiture. That's all. So there's he doesn't really he doesn't really do images of his instruments. He preferred to make them because that was an easier way to get them out of the world. So I'm going to ask you a question, Suzanne, that's related to your question. Um, because I think the answer to your question from Ryan is pretty obvious. Like, yes, this is aiming to inculcate, right? But for years, I almost wonder with these um, collected albums if there wasn't that sort of like initiates only, because there isn't like that kind of technical explanation attached. And I think the provenance stories must be more interesting. And, oh, mine was just left in an attic until like an archive donated it to the you know city. But I don't know if you want to respond to that. Yeah, I, I wish I knew how that. that Enormous, uh, enormous album got to got to Munich, but there, there, there are definitely there, there, there are a number of things in it that are not of Hartmann's era, and there, there are impressions <coughs> from his plates that could very well be printed after he died. So, I think I think it, there's a lot of evidence that someone who was an instrument maker had it next, possibly uh, yeah, Francis Sartreter, uh, but in the 17th century. But I need I still need to do more work on. On that, and there, and there are a couple of places. Uh, Georg Brentel uh, is copying his prints in a functional way later as well. In fact, there are some that don't exist anymore of Hartmann's that I think show up. So it's possible that's another another um, instrument maker who, who found it. But but definitely, but just the idea that some that that if these impressions are are later, someone is still finding it useful to have these instruments in the printed and paper form. So the fact that it's still all together, and this is not the only example. There's a, a Johannes Schoenmann album that the Goldstein Miller have now in, in DC was in, was a sort of kit uh, put together in that way. But John Hessler's written a little bit about that, and I like that idea of the sort of the starting point for instrument makers and putting a lot of things together and then seeing what comes out. But the fact that it could be multiple workshops in a row is even more interesting. Yeah. We have time for a couple more questions. You're alluding to the awkwardness. You've alluded to the. You spoke about the awkwardness of the woodcuts. Do you know anything? Rodney left a lot of records about his relationship with wood engravers. Because couldn't this partly be due to the fact that these instruments had to fit into small space? Um, you mentioned that he could have had better or more active wood engravers. Any comment? Um, are you asking me about whether I know who the engravers were, or whether no, I just generally, generally what, what they brought to the, the, the result 
Right. Um, for something I've actually had a hard time tracking down, I'm sorry about the beginning of this, of this project, it's something I would definitely love to track down more. It's, uh, it's an important question. And the thing that complicates it is the fact that these were produced over a long period of time. And he would use them in different treatises, depending on um, what the intent of it was. And the reason they were all amalgamated the way they were is because he was in a rush to make this album or to make this uh, uh, treatise to present it to his network before sending it to Rodolphe in order to get that patronage that he wanted. So that there's that element of, of, of hurrying to get it ready so that he could um, secure his, his future in some sense. So but thank you for the question. Something I have to work on. Sure. That's a question for Oh, yeah, sure. Um, this is a question that kind of started out as a question for Ellie, but I think could be expanded to the, the panel as a whole. One of the things that always really strikes me about Roger Bacon is the comparison to one of the later Bacons. Um, <laughs> and, and all of all of that later Bacon's minions in the 17th century. Um, I guess one of the things that's striking about the 16th and 17th century iteration of the experimental science is that they're much more, or they are concerned with controlling the production of texts and expanding different ways of controlling them. And I think the Tico Brahe having some printing press and all this. And so, sort of serious version of this question is. Does Roger Bacon care at all about transmission, about making it more efficient, about controlling it, about that kind of stuff? And sort of facetious version of the question is, why doesn't Roger Bacon invent or imagine the printing press? I guess. And then, what difference does the printing press make? How is the technology of transmission changing how you think about instruments or the differences that can map onto those technology changes? That's a great question. Thank you. I, um, so, Roger Bacon is the best Bacon. <laughs> before he becomes a Franciscan, about how he's concerned that there are unscrupulous copyists uh, who are um, making bad copies of his work. And when he writes these texts as a Franciscan for the Pope, he also he sends them with a student um, who can authenticate them as real, as true works of his that um, they come directly from you know, Bacon's desk to the, um, to the Pope. So he's absolutely concerned with that. One of the things that's interesting in later centuries after his death is that although the opus minus, opus minus, and the opus tertium don't circulate as don't circulate very widely, um, especially when compared to the Epistola de Secretis, which circulates very widely indeed. Um, and then of course Bacon's name becomes attached to a lot of spurious or like pseudo-Baconian texts um, that. And so his name becomes an important name, uh, even though many of the things attributed to him he didn't write, which I think is would have made him really sad. Um, why didn't he invent the printing press? There's a lot. Of, no, I mean, there's right. So there's the the history of the you know early um, members of the Royal Society absolutely thought that he had invented both the telescope and gunpowder. Um, but although the, it's interesting that the printing press, but I think that's because they know who invented the printing press, um, and they couldn't really claim it. But part of it is uh, that one of the stories in the historiography is that he didn't invent the printing press because of the evil Catholic Church, right? That the, the Franciscans prevented him from doing that. That's not the case, but um, it's certainly clear that as a Franciscan, once he becomes a Franciscan in the 1260s, he has a lot of other duties as a Franciscan, teaching, preaching, ministering, etc., 
So I think that is actually a big part of it, that it's just not, he didn't have time for it. And he doesn't write, there's a whole a long period in which he doesn't really write anything. And he talks about how his duties have kind of kept him busy. Printmaking was, was was great for for, for, for Hartman who, who put his initials on everything, even occasionally in in, uh, in, in Turkish. But uh, yeah. obviously, you can still you can still take a print. Um, Brian not only had his own printing press, but he actually made his own paper on the island of that control every aspect of his, his productions. <laughs> I think that's uh, really quite uh, key. And the copies he made, there's only 60 to 100 made of those particular ones that were intended for specific people. Later on, the, the book was published after his death um, in a much different version, black and white, and it was oriented quite differently. So, so I, it's not on the question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much. It's been a